0: One of the more difficult realities of preaching through a book as rich with stories as Acts of the Apostles is, is that you inevitably have to skip over some really fascinating stories. Acts has as many nooks and crannies as a Thomas' English muffin. But time doesn't permit us to explore them all, so we have to choose. And next week we're going to jump all the way to Acts 17, where Paul famously addresses the Athenian elite on Mars Hill. Which means that we are going to jump over the story of Paul getting so annoyed with this demon-possessed girl who's following him and Barnabas around and repeatedly shouting at the top of her lungs, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation that Paul cast out the demon from the girl just to get her to shut her trap. (laughs) We're going to miss the famous story of a Macedonian man appearing to Paul in a night vision and urging him, come to Macedonia and help us. We're going to miss the Great Jerusalem Council where the early Christian church agreed that converts to Christianity would not need to be circumcised or maintain a kosher diet, thank goodness. We're going to miss Paul's fight with Mark and stubborn refusal to let Mark accompany him on a trip. We're going to miss the sounds of Paul and Silas singing in prison. There are so many stories that we sadly have to skip, but you don't have to skip them. Go home and read them. You will not be disappointed. You may even find hope for yourself for yourself, in the stories about Paul, a man with so many obvious faults who is yet saved by grace and used by God to accomplish his will on earth as it is in heaven. He did it with Paul. What makes you think he'll be, he will treat you any differently? But that's for you to read and experience at home. This morning, we have chosen a story that illustrates a theme running through not only the stories I just mentioned, but the book of Acts as a whole. And that theme is the demand of the gospel upon the self. The demand of the gospel upon the self. The gospel is the free and gracious gift of Jesus Christ in reconciling humanity back to God through his sinless life of perfection, his vicarious death and resurrection. But the gospel, while being a free and gracious gift, also makes demands upon anyone who says, I believe it. And these aren't demands that qualify a person to receive the gift of God in Jesus Christ. No, the gift comes to us purely by grace through faith. But the demands of the gospel accompany every declaration of faith. It's intolerable to say, I believe, and remain unchanged. It's not only intolerable, it's actually impossible. The Holy Spirit will not allow it. The Holy Spirit dwelling within a Christian empowers them to live out the gospel's demands upon the self. And the gospel says that God has purchased you. He's ransomed you. He has freed you and you are now indebted to him, a slave to him. You are his. Your entire self belongs to Him, and there is not one inch of you or your desires or your body or your income or your talents or your time that is your own to do with what you want. The reality is that you've never really been your own, which is an offensive thing to say. I'd say it's an offensive thing to say to the modern mind, but I think it's probably actually more accurate to say that it's an offensive thing to the human mind. Freedom is humanity's ultimate Ultimate Idol, we want to be gods. No one can tell us what to do or how to act or how to speak. We chafe at limits and boundaries and we make it our goal to do what people say can't or shouldn't be done. I mean, a Samsung commercial from 2017 captures this human agenda in the modern world perfectly. An ostrich, a flightless bird, stumbles across a virtual reality headset and somehow manages to get the thing on his head so that he enters into a virtual world. And in this virtual world, Elton John's Rocket Man is turned up to 11, and all this ostrich can see are clouds. It's like he's flying, only of course he isn't because he's an ostrich, and ostriches, being poor excuses for birds, by nature can't fly. Only now Samsung has put it in the mind of this ostrich the desire to overcome nature. And so he spends his days running around, flapping his wings and jumping in the air, only to bite the dust time and time again, until one day he actually takes flight. And the commercial ends with an ostrich flying into the sunset in the background while Samsung flashes these words across the screen. We make what can't be made, so you can do what can't be done. In other words, let's attempt the impossible. Let's harness every technological advance and attempt to create a future that doesn't really and can't really exist. But isn't it wise to at least ask why we should attempt the impossible? Seems like a lot of pain and frustration for a goal that is indeed impossible. And indeed, attempting to throw off all restrictions and rules immerses us into a world of misery. We expend great amounts of of energy to feel free. But the Bible says that humanity is decidedly not free. You are not your own. There was a brief moment in the history of humanity when we could have said we were free. But that moment came to an inglorious end, when although actually free, we considered ourselves slaves. And seeking freedom, we ended up in bondage to sin and death. Our first parents were free and had everything they needed. And yet through the deception of Satan, they began to believe themselves deprived. They began to believe God was an anxious and paranoid God. And so they disobeyed him, believing that he had made the fruit of one tree forbidden because he feared the ascendancy of humanity, that in eating it they would become like him. But that wasn't true at all. God wasn't paranoid or threatened. He forbade humanity the fruit of one tree because he wanted them to freely obey him out of love, and he knew that their disobedience would only mean death. Freedom is not the absence of limitations. We have a twisted understanding of freedom. Freedom is fulfilling the purpose for which we were created, which is to glorify God through obedience and love. Freedom is not the absence of boundaries, but humility before the boundaries that God has set up for us. And to the world that looks like slavery, and it is. But here's the paradox of the gospel. Those who are slaves to God are the freest of all people in this world. Those who are slaves to God are the freest of all people in this world. And so the gospel promises freedom by demanding that you give yourself up and instead submit yourselves to God as servants and slaves of His. But this is hard to swallow. Humanity has a hard time believing that self-denial and submission to God will truly lead to freedom. And so Satan uses the demands of the gospel as an instrument of his wickedness to keep people from the freedom of knowing God. In the face of the gospel's demands, people cling all the more tightly to things that are incapable of actually setting them free. And we see this all throughout the book of Acts, particularly in the stories immediately surrounding our passage this morning. The gospel demands that Jesus must alone be your king. He must be given exclusive rule over your life. But in Acts 13, we see that rather than declare allegiance to King Jesus... King Herod views him as a threat to his own reign and clings all the more tightly to his throne as he attempts to stamp out Christianity before it spreads any further. The gospel demands faith, not perfect obedience to a bloated law, and so the Jewish religious leaders become jealous of the hundreds of people who are drawn to the grace of Jesus Christ. On two separate occasions, in both chapter 13 and 17, the Jewish religious leaders are explicitly said to have become jealous. With every convert to Christ, their power over the people becomes weaker and they feel themselves and their futures threatened. But rather than allowing themselves to consider the beauty of Christ, they cling all the more tightly to their power, even as it slips out of their grip. And the gospel demands justice. But for those who depend upon injustice for personal gain, the gospel is a threat to their income and status This was the case with the men in chapter 16 who were said to have owned the little girl who was possessed by a demon. Under the influence of this demon, this little girl had the capacity to tell fortunes. And these men exploited her miserable state for personal gain. They did not want her well because that meant their loss. They disregarded the power of Jesus because he threatened their livelihood. They could not see past their bank accounts to behold the wealth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so they kidnapped Paul and Silas and brought them to the Roman officials and made false accusations against them in order to have them put in prison. They rejected Jesus and his people. They rejected the gospel. And in our passage this morning, Paul and Barnabas are set up to follow in the footsteps of these wicked men. In Paul and Barnabas, we see how Satan works the temptation to abandon Jesus into our ordinary lives. Paul and Barnabas were faced with the question that the gospel asks of every Christian. Christian. Are you going to live for your own glory or for God's glory? Even if it costs you your reputation, your pride and dignity, your income even. Which is it? Your glory or God's? And this question came to a head with Paul and Barnabas in the same subtle fashion that it comes to us. You see, Paul and Barnabas' story begins in Iconium, where at first they were greeted with great warmth. Verse 1 says that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. It was a welcome relief after they were run out of town at their last stop. The end of chapter 13 captures that ugly parting. But the Holy Spirit was encouraging them all along so that Even though they were forced to flee the town for their lives, they were still filled with joy. But still, how nice it must have been to have been greeted with open arms in the next town. And so they stayed for a long time at Iconium, enjoying the warm embrace of that people. It must have been a time of restoration and healing for them, but their welcome soon wore off. There were murmurs of dissension among the people. And constant rumors of disapproval and dislike. The sort of environment that eats away at the nerves of any leader. Until finally the whole thing fell off the rails. And Paul and Barnabas found themselves again fleeing yet another city for their lives. And verse 5 says that there was actually an attempt on their lives. But they heard of it in time, just in time to escape. And one can only imagine how they're feeling at this point. The text says they continued to preach the gospel, but climb into their shoes, and would you not be doubting your career choice? Even if you're convinced that you made the right career choice, would you not be doubting God's love for you, his concern for you in this moment? Would you not feel misunderstood? You've left your home to tell these people about Jesus, to give them the hope of salvation, and this is how you're treated? Would not your pride be burning for acknowledgement? John Calvin, the father of Presbyterianism, writes of the human condition in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. He writes, Our lust is furious and our greed limitless in pursuing wealth and honors, chasing after power, heaping up riches, and gathering all those vain things which seem to give us grandeur and glory. On the other hand, we greatly fear and hate poverty, obscurity, and humility. And so we avoid these realities in every way. Thus we see that those who order their lives according to their own counsel have a restless disposition. We see how many tricks they try, how many pursuits they exhaust themselves with in order to secure the objects of their ambition or greed, while trying to avoid, on the other hand, poverty and humility. Paul and Barnabas were... Fallen human beings like you and me, and you can only imagine that the lust and greed for grandeur and glory that John Calvin says is part of the fallen human condition was inflamed within them. Rejected once again, there must have been some desire in them for glory, for acceptance. Have you ever been at a place like this? It's a low and vulnerable place that I imagine we all have known or will know at some time in our lives. But take note what happens next, for Satan loves to strike when the iron is hot. At that weak moment, when they are feeling sorry for themselves, here come the people of Lystra with flattering lips and words of praise. Paul does something great. He heals a disabled man, so he's able to walk for the first time in his life. And the people of Lystra notice him. They not only notice him, they worship him. Verse 11 says that when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. The fallen human being desires to be God And here were people actually declaring it to be so. In such a vulnerable state, would you not have absorbed their worship like a sponge? Finally, someone was seeing you as you alone know yourself to be the best, the smartest, the most beautiful, the most athletic, the funniest, the most productive Would you not, knowing that tendency within yourself and within fallen humanity at large, would you not have expected Paul and Barnabas to have been tempted, at least even just a little bit, to receive the worship of the Lyconians? They were set up for failure. And at that moment, the question of the gospel is the strongest. Is it going to be your glory or God's glory? And Luke tells us in verse 11 that the Lyconians were speaking a language Paul and Barnabas likely didn't understand. But when they put two and two together and realized that the Lyconians were worshiping them as gods, they were horrified. John Chrysostom, bishop of Istanbul in the 4th century, writes of their reaction. Notice the vehemence with which all this is done by the apostles. They tore their garments and rushed out among the multitude, crying, all because their very beings were turning away in horror from what had happened. For truly it was grief, a grief inconsolable. They were about to be called gods and so introduce idolatry, the very thing they came to destroy. This was the devil's contrivance. But they did not keep quiet. For what did they say? We are men of like nature with you. Immediately from the very outset they overthrew the evil. Rather than absorb the worship, they were inconsolably grieved by the actions of the Lyconians. They earnestly rejected the worship. They were not honored, but horrified. And so we see that their miserable circumstances did not play on their hearts and minds as one might expect, given what we know about the fallen nature of humanity and the tendencies of our own hearts. They were not made vulnerable by their rejection and public humiliation, They remained faithful to God, even as they suffered shame and disgrace from the people around them. And in verse 19, the temptation to abandon Jesus must have been at its peak. The plot to kill Paul, which was averted earlier, is finally carried out, and Paul is stoned. Large rocks were thrown at his head and body until his attackers were convinced that he was dead. They dragged his bloodied body outside of the city and left him lying in the street. Surely no one would blame Paul for packing it up and heading home at this point. But he does the craziest thing. Having miraculously survived, Paul gets up and goes back into the city and he continues to preach about Jesus. And when he's done preaching in that city, he returns to the last city where the plot to kill him was hatched in the first place. And he preaches the gospel there too. He is insane. Actually, he's not insane. He's convinced. Heart, mind, body, soul, convinced. He is convinced that his life is not his own. But he belongs body and soul and life and in death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is convinced of what he preaches in verse 22. That through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He is convinced that Jesus brought life into this world through his death, and we are called to follow in his footsteps. If our Savior suffered, then why should we expect anything different? He is convinced that dying to ourselves, we are only becoming more and more alive to God. He is convinced that God's servants are the freest of all human beings, free from the influence of their own reputations, careers, or bodies. For their minds are fixed on the glory of God alone. He is convinced of what Basil the Great, Bishop in 4th century Turkey, once said, that we must receive rebuke and castigation as a medicine that destroys disordered passion and restores health. He is convinced that the purpose of humanity is not our greatness, but God's. It's an absolute paradox. but God promises you glory for all of eternity if only you will give it up in this life. Submit yourselves to Him. Humble yourselves before God, and He will lift you up. He will set you free. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.